Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of New Retina Radio, COVID-19 coverage. And tonight we have a variety of very distinguished guests with us to discuss the roles of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the American Society of Retina Specialists in the COVID-19 crisis. Joining me tonight, we have Dr. Michael Jumper, uh, who's in San Francisco uh, and is the Chair of Education and the COVID-19 Task Force for the American Society of Retina Specialists. We have in Miami, Dr. Tim Murray, who's the President of the American Society of Retina Specialists. And in San Francisco, we have Dr. David Park, who's the CEO of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And finally, joining us again is Dr. George Williams in Detroit, who is the immediate past president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Before we get into our panel, I'd just like to update you that at this point, on April 15th, 2020, we now have just over 2 million cases of coronavirus worldwide. We've had 126,000 deaths worldwide. In the United States, we've just passed over 600,000 cases and over 26,000 deaths. So um, we'll start with Dr. Williams. George, welcome back, and thank you for coming back and joining us again. Um, Give us first a bit of an update on the status of things in Detroit. It's great to be with you, John. Detroit continues to struggle. Uh, uh, We are now, the state of Michigan's pushing 30,000 cases, over 1,000 deaths. My hospital still has about 270 active COVID patients as inpatients. That said, we do seem to be seeing some tapering. So we had a bit of a milestone just today. We had more extubations than intubations today. So we're taking that hopefully as a good sign, but it's gonna be a long road. We're looking still at several weeks. Our hospital, like most hospitals, is trying to determine how it's gonna reopen, how it's gonna be able to ramp up. I was on a call today with our chief of surgery. We've canceled almost 2,500 elective surgeries now throughout the entire hospital system. And eventually those people are gonna need to be done. So we're looking at how we can start to ramp up. We had converted most of our post-operative care units to ICU units. Now we're able to open some of those up. So we're hoping that things are starting to turn for us. So Beaumont was at capacity then through this, uh, through the last couple of weeks? Yeah, we had uh, pretty close to 100 people in intensive care unit beds. That's incredible. And then as your practice, uh, how has that changed in the last couple of weeks since we last spoke? Not much has really changed. We're still being very conservative. Uh, We're running in about 20% of our volume. We're still only doing surgical emergencies, recent detachments, trauma. 
Uh, we're looking at the opportunity to perhaps expand that, but we're not there yet. So George, you know, a lot of practices in the last week or two have just received a, a large payment under the title of provider relief funds. And this kind of came as a bit of a surprise. I certainly think the number came as a surprise to many practices. Can you tell us what this is and what it's for? Sure. Uh, the provider relief funds come from the CARES Act. So this was one of Congress's attempts to get money out to practices. It's run through CMS, and CMS made the decision that the quickest way for them to be able to do that was to look at historical records of a practice's Medicare fee-for-service revenue. They developed a formula, and the simplest way to look at that formula is that for every million dollars of fee-for-service revenue, specifically this does not include Medicare Advantage revenue, that you would get about 6.2%. So what that means is if you had a million dollars worth of revenue, you'd get $62,000. If you had $25 million worth of fee-for-service revenue, you'd get over a million dollars. And that money is specifically designed to be used to address the losses that are occurring during the COVID pandemic. Now, assuming that some of this revenue is generated from drug utilization, should we be kind of couching that money in a certain way? Should we put in a certain percentage aside, assuming they're going to try to recoup that? How do we handle those, those situations? That seems to be a bit unclear. The Academy's interpretation, and my personal interpretation, is that the money that comes from drug is completely legitimate, that CMS knew what they were doing, and that it is money that should be used within the constraints of that funding arrangement. There are limits on how you're supposed to use that money. That said, I think it's smart for practices to put that money in a separate account and to track specifically how it's used so that if someone at CMS decides to change their mind at some point, you're going to have accurate documentation of how that money was used. What's really great about this money is that it is just that. It's a grant. There, there are no provisions for repayment as long as you fulfill the criteria and that you report appropriately back to CMS how the money's utilized. And is that outlined at any point in the CMS website, or is it something that's to be determined? No, there's very specific instructions, and you can get those instructions from the CMS website. Much easier place is to go to the Academy website. The Academy has uh, detailed information and direct links to CMS. And this is totally separate and distinct from the Medicare Advance payments. Exactly. The Medicare Advance payments, uh, that's a pre-existing program. So that's in place for areas that were hit by hurricanes, for example, when practices had to shut down for natural disasters. And what they did is they just expanded the indications for that for COVID. And what that is, is you can sort of look upon that as a loan. That's just an advance on your historical Medicare fee-for-service revenue. That is not a grant, however, and that money will have to be repaid. 
in the, the academy and the ASRS are trying to explain to CMS that as, on the assumption that these events are going to continue for several months, that really the way that money is structured is not going to be adequate for practices. It currently has a 210-day payback period in which they'll simply take that out of your revenue going forward. So all that does is just kick the can down the road. And so we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, the Academy and much of the House of Medicine are trying to get substantial changes. The reason for the, the way it's structured is that, as I said, this was an established program. So they had to play by the established rules and it will, it will take legislation to change those rules. And finally, what are you hearing as far as the payroll protection program uh, monies? Are those being distributed? Are you hearing that practices are starting to receive those uh, funds? Anecdotally, we're hearing that a few have received that, but the, the PPP was, was part of, that was not medicine specific. That was part of the entire act. And just today, CNN had a statement that most of that money is already gone. That was through the Small Business Administration. You had to apply through a bank. The banks were only working with their previous clients. So I think there was a lot of frustration for physicians trying to access that. We know that some practices have been successful. I'll come back to you, George, before we close things out for a few additional thoughts, but I'd like to move on at this point to Dr. David Park, who's the CEO of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and I'm so grateful that you could join us, Dr. Park. Let's start off with the role of the Academy in COVID-19. What, what exactly is the role of the Academy? How, what are they doing for the members and, uh, as far as that goes? The Academy's role here is really the same role as most medical societies have. Uh, which is to basically be the voice of the profession, to advocate for the profession, and to be that voice not just to its members, uh, but to the public, et cetera. I mean, the Academy has 32,000 members uh, around the world, about 20, 21,000 in the United States. And one of the things that they look to us, they look to ASRS, they look to the American College of Surgeons for it is trusted information that's been uh, curated and to the degree you can validate it. And uh, so one of the things that we've done, for instance, is to work with the emergency medicine physicians, the chest physicians, the American College of Surgeons, uh, to try to make sure that there's consistent congruent information coming out there that our members can trust. We, one of the things we did fairly early in the game was to build a fairly robust uh, website, which actually in the last six weeks has been viewed now almost one and a half million times. So people are using it. And we basically put together a task force, not just of retina people, but of public health people, anterior segment, uh, epidemiologists, uh, et cetera, to really try to draw resources from as many areas. One of the other major things, and George touched on this, really is advocacy. This is an amazing time when you think about it, that we have an environment where Congress in an incredibly short period of time is making trillions of 
dollars in aggregate available to try to stimulate the economy and to help those who've been uh, hurt under COVID-19. And so it gives us an opportunity to try to advance the agenda that we think is good for our members and ultimately is good for patients as well. At the same time, we all know we have um, new challenges in practice management that we've never seen before. We're going to have to figure out how to restart practices. That's something that probably very few of us have done. And then in the background is all the normal stuff. We still have to educate residents. We give OCAP exams. We have state advocacy. We have the RUC. We have the FDA. We have journals to produce. So every society is dealing with most of what they normally did plus all the COVID stuff, and then try to communicate this in an incredibly confusing uh, environment where you've got a lot of uh, stuff in the, in the lay press that is not entirely accurate, some of the stuff on the web it isn't, and really try to help our members who are hurt, confused, uh, try to navigate their way to a, uh, to a path forward. You know, you mentioned the potential for actually being able to advocate for advocate for change, perhaps to the way that we're reimbursed. Can you go into that a little bit more as far as, as how we can accomplish that? And I think we have some slides that may demonstrate that as well. The slide that's up right now is uh, to us, I think all of us in, in healthcare policy, sort of a famous slide now. What it shows over a period of 18 years on the red bar at the bottom is the annual update to physician uh, compensation. Uh, and the annual update, as you'll see, was below zero for a while and really cumulatively does not go above 8%. All the lines at the top are for hospitals, they're for skilled nursing facilities, uh, they're for outpatient facilities. And that delta, that area between the red bar and everything else up top is where the practicing physician is falling behind. And if you look at that, that green bar, that's what they call the Medicare uh, index, which shows what the cost of running a practice is. So the area between the green bar, the cost of running a practice, and the red bar is what we're getting in terms of cumulative updates. So we're falling further and further behind. Why? Because we've been in an era of budget neutrality. Now in the COVID world, we have the potential to say, we need to expand this by healthcare has been working on smaller and smaller margins. Uh, we've been squeezing not just the fat out of the system, but we're now actually dramatically impinging our ability to surge, to deal with COVIDs, to deal with other issues. Now we have a chance to do something about that. You know, that's, that's absolutely critical. Dr. Park, is this only applicable to ophthalmology or are we going to have to circle the wagons as a specialty to get this done? Or is this going to be something that we're going to have to lean on our colleagues in, um, in general medicine? John, great question. This, this is not a retina problem. It's not an ophthalmology problem. 
this is really a problem for all of medicine. Now, we, we do have different agendas here. Uh, primary care has for decades been trying to get a reimbursement through ENMs to be increased. And I think quite frankly, most of us want well-paid, high-quality primary care physicians out there. We're patients ourselves. But at the same time, to say that growth there has to take away from procedures with this fixed pie concept uh, is a very, very limiting construct. And I think what one, if there's one thing to come out of COVID, uh, which is, I think, critical for health policy, it's the value of physicians, the value of facilities, the value of medicine. Let's take and build on it and say, okay, we need to design a health care system that has average in it. And one way to do this, needle up so that we're not dealing in a very, very low margin environment. And you'd mentioned the American College of Surgeons, David. Uh, the Academy's partnering with the American College of Surgeons? Yes, yes, we are. And in fact, there's a program that I think all American ophthalmologists are going to be hearing about in coming months. We've worked with the American College of Surgeons, with a number of other major surgical societies to fund a multi-million dollar program to try to bring both to Capitol Hill and to the American public a program to demonstrate the value of surgical procedures and of surgeons. Uh, this is something that primary care has been doing very effectively for a long time. It's, and it's time for surgeons to do the same thing. And so the Academy is a major source of funding for this and we're proud to do it. We think it's critically important. Let's talk a little bit about getting started again from this shutdown. Um, you know, and I think when the Academy first came out and said, you know, we um, discourage doctors from doing elective procedures, there was this kind of shock because no one was really being impacted that much by COVID-19 at that point. And I think very quickly, we came to appreciate the insight that the Academy had when things just started to go downhill very rapidly. And I think that was absolutely the right decision to be made. First of all, who makes these decisions? How, and how do you make these decisions from the Academy standpoint? Boy, that was one of the toughest things we've done. I mean, you think about it in the 100 and you know, 20 year history of the academy, you've never gone to the entire profession and said, you know, you know, girls and boys, you need to shut down. Uh, you need to no longer provide routine care because doing so is, is bad for the health of the general public. I mean, that's an amazing thing. So we, we make that based, first of all, on expert consensus input. Not only did we reach out to within, to people like George and many others, Within ophthalmology, we reached out very specifically to the CDC, to the Surgeon General, the American College of Surgeons, American College of Physicians, a number of others, and we got the same consistent message. Uh, we need to reduce the risk of transmissibility. We need to reduce the use of disposable PPE. And then this goes to the entire board. And this was a consensus uh, opinion of the 21 member board. And so that's how that a decision of that magnitude gets made. So I get the next, go ahead. 
Yeah. So the next question is going to be, okay, so how do you anticipate we're going to undo this? And I know it's hard to commit to a time frame, but what do you, what do you see playing out as far as getting things restarted? Um, we're already in that process, John, because, uh, you know, we all have to ramp up. We have to start up. The question is, when is it the right time? When is it the safe time? Not only for society, but for our own staff and for ourselves. We've lost too many ophthalmologists to COVID, quite frankly. And uh, so what we're already doing is engaging the public health community. We're engaging people in government. And what is going to happen, and to be honest with you, we hope to get some guidance out within the next week, is to say this is not going to be like stopping. It's not a countrywide emergency. This is going to be starting up based on local conditions, everything from availability of testing and tracing carriers uh, and uh, the ability to uh, as accurately assess the amount of community disease you have and also what your mayors, what your governors are saying. And so this is going to roll out, you know, piece by piece across the country. What we're going to be doing is putting out guidance for ophthalmologists on how to make those decisions. And then also more importantly, you know, what's practice going to look like the first day you open it up? I mean, we're, we are, we all think we're going to have all these patients <coughs> running in the doors and say, you know, do my epiretinal membrane that you had to put off. Uh, but those patients are going to be worried about transmission of disease in the waiting room. They're going to want to know what kind of, why isn't the doctor wearing a mask anymore? Or why is he or she wearing a mask? And so we're going to have to deal with everything from scheduling to use of PPE, to the way our waiting room is architected, to our own individual testing requirements of our staff, of the patients on whom we're going to do surgery, and many, many more factors. So it's going to be complicated, which is why we are quite frankly taking a little time to try to do it right. Well, that gives so much insight into just the depth and effort that you all put into this. I mean, it's really, really remarkable. And we'll come back in just a bit, Dr. Park, and finish up with a few more questions. I want to move on now to Dr. Tim Murray, who's in Miami and is the uh, president of the American Society of Retina Specialists. Tim, first of all, what are the conditions down in Miami? So Miami was um, a relatively early hotspot. You know, we've made the news with some of the flights coming in from other areas and certainly with our cruise industry. We're hitting now at about 22,000 cases and about um, almost 600 deaths. So we have a lot of cases. Unfortunately, we haven't had that same mortality rate that some of the other hotspots have experienced. So that's been a positive. Um, we're broadly putting testing out into the community. I think we've tested almost 300,000 people now, and about a third of the people that are, are tested end up being positive. Um, so there's a significant difference between the number of notified cases and the number of people that are testing positive. That's something I think that we all recognize, and that's probably one of our biggest concerns for those of us that are still seeing patients emergently and urgently. Um, so most of the redness specialty in the United States is, is still seeing patients, um, and I think that's put us in a unique forefront of, of, of care at, at kind of a frontline delivery. 
Um, and that's where I think the ASRS and the AAO have been very helpful in giving us guidelines. So I'm in the middle of a hotspot. I'm seeing patients um, on an emergent and urgent basis. I'm doing intravitreal injections that need to be done and I'm operating. So, um, but it's a different world that we do that in. So good protective equipment for us and our staff and a lot of concerns with, from our patients and our staffs and our families. You know, and Tim, as someone who has a lot of relationships with international doctors and as president of the American Society of Retina Specialists, how is our experience here differing from, say, the experiences in Italy and some of the other hotspots around the world? So one of the things the ASRS did um, early was we did a, an ASRS-wide COVID survey, and we looked both at our national and our international members. The international members were more likely not to be seeing patients and early they were much more likely to be using extensive PPE. Um, we, we've seen a shift in the US a little bit toward more PPE of our, of our members. Um, I think David Park can comment on the academy. You had an, also a survey looking at what the impact on most clinical practices were. Um, for the academy overall, I think many people have practices that are at 10% of the volume of pre-COVID. For most of the retina specialty group in the United States, that's been about 50 to 60% of their clinical volume focused on urgent care. And so Tim, transitioning over to the ASRS and its role in COVID, uh, what is the ASRS's role? How is it distinct from the academy and how does it work with the academy? So I think the ASRS, the niche for our society is retina specialists. And I think that the academy incorporates us as one of their subspecialty groups, but has a broad focus beyond that. Um, so I think we work very well together when we overlap in the retina space. Um, sometimes when you're the smaller focus society, you have the opportunity to maybe see things trending within that, that, that niche a little quicker and the ability maybe to respond a little faster. Um, but I see us really working sort of hand in glove for most of the major decision trees. For the retina specialists, coming to the ASRS site gives them a little focus on what's retina. Um, you can get that at the academy, but the academy also has a broader focus beyond retina. Yeah, yeah I would have to credit Jill Blim has done an amazing job. When you go to the uh, ASRS website, there are article after article on reimbursement and updates on COVID-19 and things such as that. Um, you know, when we think about the impact of, of coronavirus on a retina practice, when do you foresee retina practices being more normal going forward? I don't think we're going to be normal for a long time, but I see us broadly sort of bringing our patients back in sort of a, a staggered fashion based on those patients at greatest risk. So we're still seeing our urgent and emergent patients, but we have a lot of high-risk patients that have been deferred from evaluation or treatment. I think we're going to have to triage how we bring those patients back. And I think what, uh, what David said when he said, Patients have different expectations. So you're not gonna have patients that are gonna want 50 people in a waiting room sitting you know, five inches apart. I, I have had really a, an awareness of the patient's focus on social distancing in my office and protective gear within themselves and my staff and how we manage the space between patient to patient visits. Um, and I think our patients are gonna need a lot of reassurance with that. I think it's a lot easier, John, to provide that in our offices. I think when we leave the office and go to the OR, 
that concern for our patients escalates significantly. And we have less control over those, those options for our patients. So that's gonna play a role from, from us bringing back our surgical component. I think our clinical component will come back much quicker than our surgical component. And on the medical side of things, are there any reports of any retinal findings with COVID-19? So, you know, um, we're all familiar with some of the, the viral illnesses and, and ocular findings. The Academy's nicely reported on the conjunctivitis component. Um, we really have not had any report yet from our members of a viral-associated retinopathy, but we know with SARS and MERS that that can occur, and we've certainly seen that with other viral infections. So I'm waiting for us to see it, but I'm surprised that it hasn't really been a big component of what we've seen so far. Great. Tim, hang in there. We'll come right back to you. I want to go on to uh, Dr. Mike Jumper, who's in San Francisco. Mike, first of all, what's the status of things in San Francisco as far as general health care and, uh, and then practice specific? Well, um, in the Bay Area, which you know is 7.75 million people, it's been remarkable about at how low of an uh, impact this has had thus far. There's about 5,300 cases uh, in the nine-county area surrounding the Bay, and uh, there have been, let's see, about 144 deaths of today, which uh, is remarkable. Now, I work in uh, kind of the private hospital realm, and so of the hospitals that I work out of, uh, there have been in the census no more than 20 to 30 patients uh, that have been reported to me through our kind of hospital uh, blasts that we get. Uh, and about a, a quarter to a third of those have been in the ICU. So the, the system has not been inundated like it has in other places you just, uh, we talked about, but it also is um, something where we're doing all the same things that Tim and George have already discussed. And I'm sure you're doing there in, in Kentucky. So, Mike, why do you think San Francisco has such a low rate of death? I mean, they have a tremendous homeless population. Um, they were affected very early with this, yet it seems like the uh, mortality rate is incredibly low there. Well, it goes back to testing. We don't know, but I have a sense that, you know, we've had, you know, to the West Coast, there are about 8,000 uh, um, uh, Asian uh, visitors every day that land in the airports along the coast. And I have to think that we had some, we have some low level of uh, penetrance or some high level of penetrance already that hopefully will be proven with serum testing over the next few months or weeks. Uh, because I, I, I have to think that us, you know, having a stay at home order a, a week or so earlier than some places, uh, taking it pretty seriously pretty early, all that helped, but it can't explain the tremendous difference we have between us and other states. So you didn't do anything special or different really as far as quarantining any, uh, to any greater extent than any place else? I, I mean, I don't think so. And talking to my colleagues, I do think that we took it seriously here in California. We got, you know, we had um, some leadership from the govern governor, the mayors in the areas around, everybody was in lockstep and that helped. Uh, but it can't really explain the fact that uh, we're, we have such low level of uh, cases for such a huge population in the, in the state, as well as the number of deaths being as low as they are. Now, Mike, you're the director of the ASRS COVID-19 task force. Describe to me who makes up that task force and what the task force does. 
Well, this is all sort of on the go sort of things that happen, but essentially uh, through the executive committee, we decided we needed to have uh, further guidance from what the AAO had, had provided. The AAO had done an excellent job in providing you know, very good kind of overall guidance for ophthalmologists. And we were hoping to just augment uh, what they had uh, for our uh, subspecialty in retina so that we could um, provide some guidance, especially with the uh, operating room, uh, you know, what, what should go to the operating room, what should be considered emergent and urgent so that the, um, the retina specialist had something to show to their hospital um, uh, to, to be able to get cases on. So anyway, we, we got a, a, a group of people together that represented university and good private practice, big private practices. It was Joel Perlman, Elliot Son, Sophie Bakri, Judy Kim, and myself. And we put together uh, some guidance that uh, uh, I think we got pretty good feedback from our members just saying that, you know, this was something that was helpful that they could show to their uh, OR director to the, a lot of these operating rooms had formed ad hoc committees on deciding what cases could be done, what cases should be put off, and this was the kind of guidance that they needed. Yeah, certainly that was absolutely very helpful when our surgery center came to us and said, hey, what cases do you want to do? What can you do to just be able to say, hey, look, here is our official organization that represents us. Tremendously helpful to have that. You, know, now, you wear two hats also. because. Yeah. Go ahead, oh, yeah. Go, I was just going to say, it's interesting because this, this is the first time that, you know, we know what an emergent case is, right? But, you know, if you're talking about a three-month delay, well, is a macular hole an elective case? You know, uh, we have to have something what I kind of, we coined as being non-urgent, uh, non-elective, you know, to where, you know, it can't go on forever with a, a macular hole or something without really probably compromising vision. And so, uh, this brought up a lot of, uh, you know, issues that had never been thought of before, in my opinion. And that task force meets every week and updates things, makes different decisions. How do you, how do you handle it going forward? Uh, we've been updating as we feel necessary. It needs updating now. We, you know, it just, it essentially is um, kind of a living document that we're trying to kind of keep relevant for uh, our members. And we're now, I think people understand the issues about how to handle their uh, clinic and how to distance and all that. Now we're working on, you know, when we start getting some insight as to how the testing is going to go toward getting toward uh, uh, closer back to normal, that's where we're going to be working. You wear two hats with the ASRS. You're also the chair of education. And this uh, has really impacted fellows. What should a fellow's role be during the COVID-19 crisis? Well, we are also a fellowship training program as you are and, and uh, everybody here has had relationships with fellowship training. And, you know, to me, um, it's, it's tough because uh, certainly the fellows, we want them to be very involved, yet we want to expose our patients to the minimum amount of, um, of people that we can. Uh, also, in our case, we have a fellow that goes to county hospital, goes to a Lions clinic, and, you know, we didn't have as much control over how uh, quickly those places implemented the distancing, the, the curtailing their, their schedules, 
And it turns out our fellow was seeing a lot more patients in the county system because they hadn't quite gotten up to speed as to this whole situation. And so we were worried that this fellow was then putting the rest of our practice at risk by coming back. I mean, it was a, it was a tough situation. But, you know, the, the fellow has been involved with this, the emergency surgeries that we've done. Uh, the fellow has been involved in our clinics. Um, and the fellow has been involved with the education, uh, with the education that's happened through the ASRS. And we've actually had more time to have conferences and get-togethers uh, ourselves. So uh, there has been a lot of education going on, but it's a very different experience right now for them. Absolutely. And, and any advice for fellows on looking for jobs at this time? You know, they use the meeting. Um, they use this time really to go visit practices. What should a fellow be doing right now alternatively to try and establish communication with practices? Well, I think that, you know, the SRS as, as well as the academy have job boards that are, are being used. Uh, the, the, you know, the biggest problem is that the people on the other end don't know what's going to, what to expect in the next months and whether or not uh, I think hiring is just going to be a difficult thing to, to do. There have been, we did, we uh, performed a, uh, a, a survey of the retina fellows and had a, over a hundred respondents and uh, some of those have already taken jobs and I am assuming that that won't change. Uh, others are talking about how they are concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to get a job in, in this current environment. Um, but I do think that, you know, this will all uh, sort of even out in the next months uh, as, as we start figuring out how to get back to normal otherwise. And I think the really nice thing, if you're a fellow out there right now and you're a second year fellow, you should have a job lined mm -hmm. up going forward into, into July. If you're a first year fellow, you have plenty of time. And I think practices may become hesitant right now to say, gosh, where are we going to be in six months or a year? Do we need another person with the way things are looking with all the slowdown and whatnot? And I think things will hopefully start to ramp back up and give them the, the enthusiasm to hire a really good person going forward. One thing I noticed on the ASRS website is Stacy Kiff has organized a series of lectures. Can you talk a little bit about that, Michael or Tim? Yeah, I'll take it. I mean, Stacy did a great job uh, working with Kuros Rezai, and uh, a lot of people have stepped up to volunteer their time to give lectures. And in one week alone, uh, there have been 30 hours of lecture material that's been provided to the fellows and to anyone who, any ASRS member who wants to listen in. And those lectures are then kind of uh, archived and are on the website. Um, those lectures um, are by, you know, the the world leaders in these fields. And so it's very um, uh, great that everybody's donated their time and uh, have provided great uh, content for the website and for our fellows. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, if you go and look, there's lectures from eight in the morning until eight at night, every hour, fantastic retina specialists are, are giving lectures on things that are their areas of expertise from that standpoint. I want to come back around now to George. And George, to wrap things up with each person, I, I asked you this last time, you're in the hardest hit area of anybody uh, on this panel. What are some things that we should be thinking about now that, that will impact us in a couple of weeks when things may or may not be getting worse? 
Well, I think the, the primary concern is it's so hard to predict what's going to happen in each area. It's interesting, as Mike was saying, that San Francisco seems to have not been hit as hard. But I, I think if you plan for the worst and hope for the best, you're going to be in a much better position than taking the opposite approach. Uh, we fortunately had great leadership in our group. Uh, Alan Ruby and Tony Capone uh, took charge of this and, and basically convinced us all that we needed to be very aggressive early on. And, and fortunately, we listened to them. And now that things do seem to have stabilized in the, in the Detroit area and our practices throughout Michigan, now we're looking at the next step. And as we've heard already, the next step is going to be different everywhere around the country. It's a little bit like politics. All politics are local. I think how we all ramp up uh, is, is going to be dependent upon many local factors. I do think that this is something that's going to affect the way we practice, not just for weeks, not just for months, but I think a year from now, we're going to still be dealing with the sequelae of this process, the uncertainty, the point that our patients are going to come to us with such different expectations. The days of cramming people into a, into a waiting room are, are simply over. So we're going to have to look at ways such as uh, uh, virtual waiting rooms. We're doing that now. Right now, we have people waiting out in their cars. When we're ready for them, we give them a text and they, they come in. So much is going to change our staff, the folks that we work with are going to have different expectations. It's going to be a very interesting ride. And George, on the, along the lines of advocacy, um, what can physicians be doing at this point aside from caring for their patients? Well, that's always the most important thing. But as David outlined, we have a unique opportunity. I would say once in a generation opportunity. Certainly the only opportunity of this magnitude that I've seen in 30 odd years of federal affairs and, and patient advocacy. And that's to show that the current system is not sustainable. We cannot go back to where we were. We created a system that's predicated on the lowest cost while still demanding the highest quality and immediate access. And the price we've paid for that system is that there is no reserve and no ability to ramp up. Just look at the fact that issues such as just-in-time supply and so I think we're going to, the entire country is going to be looking at healthcare in a much different way. We need to have excess capacity, and there will be costs to have that excess capacity. But that's the only way we're going to prevent reliving this dream in the future. 
And I know it would lead into a much larger discussion, but how do you foresee, who do you foresee paying for that excess? Well, at the end of the day, the economy pays for it. So is it going to be in, uh, in terms of higher taxes? Is it going to be the public pay, paying higher prices? But we, we need to change things. This has been a wake-up call. I think uh, this is going to have an immense effect on the concepts of globalization. The fact that our supply chains have become so dependent on parts of the world that may not always have our best interest at heart. So this is this goes beyond healthcare to basic economic principles. And if you look at what people want in healthcare, everyone wants the highest quality, the lowest cost, and immediate access. The dirty little secret is you only get to pick two. You can't have all three. That's words of wisdom. David, um, not to hold you to anything specific, but what do you think is going to be the anticipated return to elective procedures? Uh, I can't tell you precisely when it's going to be, John. Uh, if you look at the, the information out of most of the, uh, the public health uh, predictive analytics sites. They say that some areas are past their peak. And they're, unfortunately, people go, woohoo, we're past the peak, now we can all go back to work. Well, they forget the downside of the slope is just as dangerous as the upside. Uh, and there are some areas that are not gonna peak for two to three weeks. I mean, for instance, right now, just look at the Washington DC area. Uh, that's one of the hottest areas of the country right now. It isn't close to its peak, unfortunately. And there's some other pretty good-sized cities that have, uh, where the disease really hasn't shown up. And so that's why I think we're going to be very much on an individual basis. If you held my feet to the fire, uh, you'd probably let, you know, I'd say that most areas are going to start to return sometime between early May and uh, the end of May. Uh, now, it's not going to be, you know, zero to 60 in 10 seconds. Uh, I think, you know, as uh, every one of, of my colleagues here has said, this is going to be a complex process. It's going to be involved some ramping up by the practices and also uh, by society and by individuals. The, the one thing that I think we have to keep in mind, which is, is critical and it's going to sound trite, and I'll apologize for that in advance, but it's the truth. We need to quit thinking about ourselves as cornea specialists, retina specialists, or even as ophthalmologists. It's really as physicians. And a lot of the issues that we're gonna be dealing with are not gonna be retina, they're not gonna be colorectal surgery, they're gonna be physician issues. And we really have an, an opportunity here to learn from what we've been through. Uh, and I, I got an email one time, not from a retina person, uh, but uh, from a physician who said, 
you know, they wanted to put me in a triage role at my institution, but I'm too valuable for that. And of course, my immediate response was probably what everybody else was thinking, well, what makes you more valuable than the next physician? And I think there's a little bit of humility that we're all coming out of this process with. No, that's great insight. And I would be remiss, Dr. Park, if I didn't ask the $100 million question, uh, what does the annual meeting look like in your mind? It's going to be in Las Vegas. It's going to be in the fall. Do we have an annual meeting? Is it a virtual meeting? And what will be the deciding factors on that? Um, <clears throat> we are planning on it being a real uh, in-person meeting. Uh, we think that, yes, there'll probably be COVID in the community. There'll probably be COVID in the community for the next two or three years. And we're certainly not going to sort of wait on it to all go away or for the entire population to be vaccinated. Uh, we're going to adapt. And uh, when you look at big meetings, not just our meeting, but I'm sure ASRS or any non-medical meeting, we're going to do some things. You're not going to pack people cheek to jowl in the meeting room. Uh, and you're going to have, there's going to be a lot more hand sanitizer out there. Uh, and there are going to be some things that you do uh, by choice virtually because it's a safer way and you can put good education out there that way. Um, so, because the primary goal has got to be the safety of your attendees and their families. Having said that, my anticipation is that we will have testing really well rolled out by them. We may have that, quite frankly, within a couple of months. Uh, and so we hopefully will all know our own antibody situation. And if you've got antibodies, based on current information, you're good to go, okay? Uh, and we will have better handle on treating the disease. If you talk to the chest physicians, they're now ventilating these patients differently than they did in mid-March. Uh, and the treatment, the uh, survival rates, which were good then or even better now because of the things that they've learned. Uh, having said that, John, we also recognize that having been through one black swan event right now, uh, you know, the totally unanticipated, absolutely disruptive event it's going to, you know, these can happen again in the future. And so we're doing something now that probably ASRS and every organization will do for every meeting in the future. You're also contingency planning in a way you never did before. So that if you're wrong, you can not only put on a virtual meeting, but you can put on a really good, stimulating, innovative virtual meeting. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of things. But what I'm hoping is that. For the year 2020, a special year in ophthalmology, we'll have a full meeting in Las Vegas. We'll probably be fist bumping each other or going live long and prosper, uh, you know, and we'll probably wash our hands more often, but we'll, we'll be celebrating being together, which will be one of the few times we've had a chance to do that since this all started. That's, that's wonderful, and, and I would love nothing more than to fist bump. This uh, about my next uh, discussant, Tim Murray at Academy. Um, Tim, when, uh, what do you see the role of a retina specialist being 
in six months from now? How do you see our, our practices changing by the end of 2020? I think that you're going to see a fairly quick clinical ramp up for the retina specialist. Um, but I think that we're going to see different scheduling structures and different expectations from our patients as to how we move them through the clinic. I think in many um, academic centers and, and other institutions that the patients are used to long wait times where they're in a queue for a significant period of time. I, I don't think our patients are going to accept that any longer. So I think patients are going to say, I want to come in. I want to be taken care of excellently as, as you know, George and David as I've alluded to, but I want you to minimize my risk. And in fact, patients think they would have no risk. And I think you understand as, as the retina specialty community does is that we're going to minimize the risk to the best of our abilities. So I think we're going to look much like we have in the past, but in a very different way. So are we going to be open? Are we going to be seeing our patients? Yes, I think we will be. Will it be the way we've seen patients in the past? I think not. I think there's huge opportunity for telemedicine in, in, in some of the areas for, for screening potentially for us. Um, that would have played a big role if it was available during the, the epidemic. And I think some of the telehealth initiatives from CMS are going to be helpful also. Bottom line is that you know, we're retina specialists and we're focused on taking the best care of our patients. And I think that's what we're going to continue to do. And once again, the same question we asked Dr. Park as president of the ASRS with a summer meeting uh, in Seattle. What does that look like? Is that going to take place? So if I was speaking for David, I would tell you, hell yes, we're having our academy meeting in, in, in you know, Vegas and that's going to go ahead. And I can't imagine that it's not. Um, I'm feeling strongly that maybe the first meeting that we're going to have in the ophthalmology space that's a major meeting is going to be the ASRS meeting at the end of July. But I think that we're all holding the caveats of travel has to be appropriate, lodging has to be available, and we need to be able to feel that we can keep our members safe and their families safe in the meeting. Having said that, I think, I think in-person meetings is a lot of what draws us to um, retina and being able to be with our colleagues. And it is, as much as I love Zoom, it's a very different experience to be there. And, I, and I'm hoping that we can get back because this is 2020. It's a big year for all of us in, in ophthalmology. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do that. But I do appreciate that we're pushing the envelope and, and we're going to have to have the ability to, to alternate our approach. And we are structured to be able to do a virtual meeting if that is going to be necessary. And do we have a, a drop dead timeline for when uh, we're go going to know yes or no, whether we're going to have this meeting? So I think that I'm, I'm pushing for six weeks um, to get some feedback. You know, um, Seattle's done beautifully in terms of how it's handled its COVID experience, even though it was a major hotspot, it had the first case in, in the United States. Um, but they've done really well, and we're getting some assurances that we expect to have a meeting. We're going to use the meetings that precede us at the convention center to get an idea of how that's structured. There's some discussion that maybe meetings will not be able to have more than 250 or 500 people in a, in a contiguous venue. Um, we don't know what it's going to look like yet. So I'm strongly pushing for us to have an annual meeting in person. And, and I think if you give me six weeks, I'll have, a, I'll have a really strong answer for you. Fantastic. Mike, in San Francisco, um, from your viewpoint, when do you think 
retina is going to look more normal and what will normal look like in late 2020? Well, I think as George alluded, you know, the way that we check patients in, the way that we process patients, the way that we uh, actually check them out has all changed. And some of those things are just going to stick. We're going to have virtual waiting rooms. We're going to have uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more rapid throughput, uh, which has happened in our, in our practice. I think we may extend our day longer uh, as um, we're able to extend the time between patients a little bit more. Um, I think that we're going to have, as the summer hits, a big deluge, like George had mentioned that 2,500 elective cases that have been postponed, all those are going to be getting done. And ORs are going to be uh, probably working much harder to get, get caught up uh, as the summer goes on and as we're getting back to normal. In San Francisco, you know, I, I uh, have hope that we're going to be doing uh, broad testing uh, first for uh, susceptible populations, second for healthcare providers, uh, for everyone to try to figure out and, and do a lot better job of uh, isolating those people in those uh, cases that need to be isolated and letting the rest of the, the Bay Area get back to business. I think that there's going to be a lot of community support for that. In fact, you know, I could see uh, some of these tech companies pushing this as well to try to get everybody back moving at it. I, I don't know how that's going to look, and I'm sure David has way more uh, insight into this than I do, but as a, as a retina specialist just seeing patients, I think that if we, once we get testing going and we get to know what people's immunity status is, it's going to really ramp up and we're going to be back closer to normal as the majority of the population starts uh, learning their immunity status. And I'm hopeful that one of the reasons that the Bay Area has been affected less than others other areas, maybe because we had uh, a high immunity status going into this. And then finally, one last question, advice for fellows who are finishing their first year and are kind of thinking, gosh, is this, is this going to be this way forever? Mm -hmm. uh, my, my advice to the fellows would be that this is one of those learning experiences, just like people who were starting their training during other epidemics, for instance, the AIDS epidemic, which I was, you know, I wasn't at the very forefront of that, but that was something that was a very important part of my training. It's something that, you know, will have an impact on you the rest of your career. Uh, you'll have learned things that way that you'll never learn any other way. And um, I think there are going to be some positives uh, to have learning points from this. Maybe they won't have the surgical numbers for elective cases, but you know, we're still doing the same number of detachments that we were doing before pretty much. And uh, I do think that, you know, this is not going to be that disruptive to their career if I had to predict at this point. Well, I want to thank all of you all for uh, spending an hour tonight uh, discussing the benefits of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the roles of the American Society of Retina Specialists. Dr. Park, Dr. Williams, Dr. Murray, Dr. Jumper, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you to New Retina Radio for putting this on, and thank you to all of those who uh, spent the hour with us. We'll be back in the next uh, week or two with more updates from New Retina Radio COVID-19 coverage. Have a good evening and stay safe. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, 
Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.